Sending and receiving mail is and has always been a curious thing to me. I can put a small amount of postage on a letter and someone will pick it up from my house. In a matter of days, it'll be delivered to a specific person at virtually any address in the world. If I send a letter, the recipient, as well as anyone else who handles this letter, can look at the postmark and see the city the letter was mailed from. Postcards have pictures that share the view of the sender with the recipient. Postcards are a vivid reminder of a location that can be the source of excitement, envy, and sometimes longing. Alcatraz Penitentiary had its own post office and cancellation stamp. Incoming mail was required to list the inmate's name, the inmate's number, and his cell number. Letters from Alcatraz were marked with the large red capitalized word Alcatraz stamped across the envelope. Not all mail from distant locations brings news of leisure and new experiences. An envelope marked Alcatraz and delivered to a home in rural Washington state brought shame to the recipients and knowledge from all who handled that letter that the person sending the letter was unimaginably bad and that the people that were receiving the letter were connected to this sender. Nathan Glenn Williams, inmate number 1103AZ, in cell number B256, learned years later the shame his family felt as each letter was delivered from their wayward son. Stamped with the large red Alcatraz stamp, each letter was a reminder to Blanche and Merritt Williams, the mail carrier, and to everyone else in town that that little criminal, Glenn Williams, was one of America's worst criminals. My name is Jeff Vargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 4 of the High Adventure Podcast. This is Episode 3, so if you've missed the previous episodes, I encourage you to go back and get up to speed on this story. If you're new to the High Adventure Podcast, I hope you'll go back and listen to the previous seasons. I think you might enjoy those stories. I want to encourage you to go to our website or the show notes and check out our sponsors and affiliates. And don't forget our feature documentary, Assault in El Capitan, that's available on streaming sites everywhere. And last but not least, our audiobook, Everest Alone, Maurice Wilson's 1934 journey to be the first person to stand on the summit. Everest Alone is available on our website and through most audiobook publishers. You can reach us on all our social media platforms, but the easiest way is probably just to go to our website, accidentalproductions.net, and you can contact us through our contact button right there on the homepage. We also post these episodes on both our YouTube and Vimeo channels, and both these channels are under our company name, Accidental Productions. So, Please subscribe to both of these channels. We really appreciate it. We're moving closer to launching our new podcast network, and I'm really excited about some of the new shows we're developing. We're expanding into a few new genres, and I think you're going to like what we offer. Keep an eye out on our website and our social media for official announcements to come out. And subscribe to this podcast and our YouTube channel to get all the show previews and all of our new content. Hey, maybe you have a podcast or an idea for a podcast. Shoot us a message through our website and maybe you can become part of our network or even produce a show of your own.
In our last episode, Glenn has, quote, graduated from the Washington State Training School for Boys and has moved up to the State Reformatory in Monroe, Washington on a three- to five-year sentence. Disappointment is a powerful emotion, if it's even an emotion at all. But most of us are guided by a feeling that disappointment is one of the very worst feelings you can have. If you've suffered some type of physical pain, you can years later forget how bad it actually hurt, or perhaps even laugh about the incident that caused the pain. But being disappointed or disappointing another person is an ache that never really goes away. We often make decisions based on the idea that the decision will make someone proud, or conversely if that decision will disappoint someone. Being disappointed or causing disappointment can inflict a wound so deep that it may never fully heal. The idea of disappointment can cripple our decision-making. If you're taking a risk in your life, perhaps starting a business or going for a promotion, or even buying a new car, the thought that you may be making a mistake or you may fail could cause you to fear that you're disappointing someone else. And that's really the crux the disappointment of others. We can pretty quickly get over disappointing ourselves with stories we tell ourselves in our own minds that manipulate the situations, but to disappoint someone else can cause shame and could paralyze you from taking other really benign risks. The stories we tell on this podcast often profile people who are unafraid of risk, failure, and disappointment in themselves or disappointment of others. Is that a good thing? I don't know. But it's certainly a personal decision and makes for some good stories. In the case of Glenn Williams, disappointment in himself was non-existent. Each setback seemed to be an opportunity to learn and refine his goals. Each year, month, day, and hour he spent behind bars was an opportunity to reevaluate his choices and to use his choices and experiences that would move him forward to his goal of being a career criminal. Glenn seemed only slightly aware and really unresponsive to the disappointment of his family. His shame was short and fleeting. So what is it when someone has no stop sign, no barometer, no fear of disappointing others? Is that a personality flaw in the adventurous souls who climb mountains, race cars, or rob banks? Glenn sat down at the stainless steel table in the dining hall for his first breakfast in his new home. An old inmate shuffled in and squeezed himself onto the bench next to Glenn. The older man took a sip of coffee that he called Kentucky Stud Horse Piss and asked Glenn's name. The man told Glenn his name was Pete. Glenn was understandably nervous and terrified would not be too strong a word. Pete, without looking up or making eye contact with Glenn, began a monologue. It was smooth and seemingly rehearsed, and most likely had been given to young inmates many times. Glenn, Pete said, you're a youngster, and a dumb one at that. Your kind is three cents apiece, and you're overpriced. There are some damn good men in here, and my twelve years in this place I've actually met all three of them. In the main, the men in here are the sorriest individuals you'll meet this side of hell. 
These are degenerates and wallow in scum. Seems like you're just starting to get a little bit of that scum on you. Well, maybe you have a chance. But listen closely. Most in here would snitch on their mother if it would earn them a good behavior credit. They steal from each other, they rape the weak and helpless, and kill the ones that won't conform to their methods. The only person worse than a professional criminal is the men who choose to guard them in a place like this. The words of the old man turned Glenn from an arrogant young criminal to a scared little brat. But Pete had done something far worse than scare Glenn. He'd shattered the illusion that Glenn had believed about crime and criminals. All the grandiose ideas about the crimes and the stories from the books and movies that glorified the criminal life were shattered in one brief monologue over a cup of Kentucky stud horse piss. As Glenn finished and was climbing off the bench, Pete said, Glenn, I tell you this because you still have a chance. I don't want to see you ruin your life like I've ruined mine. Glenn climbed off the bench and turned to find an enormous mountain of a man standing in front of him. Glenn's eyes met the man's chest. The guy was huge. With no defense and no plan, Glenn looked up at the man's face. The man looked down and very seriously said, Son, you should listen to this man. It's the best advice you'll ever get in here. This advice was optimistic compared to the sign that was painted on the archway that entered the prison. That sign read, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Not exactly the uplifting words of an institution that was supposedly dedicated to reform. And it was, in fact, after all, called a reformatory. Once settled into his new home, Glenn was faced with decisions. All inmates were given the option of going to school and attending classes each day or sent to work. Though Glenn was still in his teens, he was far behind in school. He spent much of his short life incarcerated, and formal schooling was not part of the routine on this long-range criminal plans. The first day of school at the Washington State Reformatory was unlike any first day of school for most students. There was no excitement to meet the new teacher or to see old friends or to survey the class for the first crush of the new year. The class that showed up that Monday morning at 8.30 a.m. was a tough crowd. But contrary to what might be thought of as obvious, they were well behaved. Each of these guys had been given a chance of hard labor or school. Any disruption or classroom problem would result in expulsion from the class and entrance into the road crew. And there were no second chances at this school. Glenn was surprised to learn that the teacher himself was an inmate and was kind and caring, not the hard-edged bullied he'd been expecting. Prior to teaching at the State Reformatory, the teacher, Richard Culp, had graduated from USC and been a professor at the University of Washington. With his new teacher's compassionate teaching style, Glenn's interest in school grew. He began skipping movie night and other entertainment opportunities to stay on his cell and study. The teacher saw Glenn's interest growing, but was hard on him, but not harsh. Even at the young age of 16, Glenn saw what this teacher inmate was trying to do for him. Glenn felt for once in his life he had a mentor, a man who inspired him to learn and had the confidence in him that he could learn. He wasn't just another long line of people who judged him. But let's be realistic here. Maybe it was the adult jail that scared him and a mentor that was helping him see a different path for his life. 
He'd had plenty of chances and plenty of people who tried to help, but for some reason this time the advice was making sense and sticking. Glenn noticed that the teacher was popular with the students, and he seemed to be respected and admired by everyone who knew him. But he also noticed that the teacher spent most of his time alone. And on the yard and in the dining hall, he seemed to always be alone. Why was this popular guy who had so much to give, and who'd helped so many, have no friends? After class one day, while working on an assignment together, Glenn asked his teacher about his solitary life in prison. Keep in mind, this is 1931, and Richard Culp, the teacher, had already been in prison for several years. The teacher confessed to Glenn that he'd been a professor at the University of Washington, and that he'd been discovered having an affair with a male student while teaching at the university. For that, he was fired, convicted, and sentenced to four to ten years in the reformatory. The professor told Glenn that he understood why he was an outcast, and he warned Glenn that, in his own best interest, he should be careful about how he talked about his teacher to the other inmates. Glenn would face plenty of difficulties as a 15-year-old in this adult prison. There'd be no need to make things worse for himself or allow rumors to create a dangerous situation for either of them. Glenn was unaffected by the news from his teacher, and in true anti-establishment form, Glenn did and said exactly what he wanted to to anyone who cared to listen. Glenn and his teacher formed a professional bond that was strong, but at no time, according to Glenn, did Professor Culp treat him in any way other than simply a student in his class. The mental strength of his teacher impressed Glenn. This man accepted his sentence, but was unapologetic for his lifestyle, and that, to Glenn, was admirable. So it was a soul-crushing and life-changing day when Glenn, while visiting the professor's cell for some extra help, saw the professor pass out cold and crash to the floor. As Glenn frantically called for help, by the time the guards arrived, Professor Richard Culp was dead. Glenn learned later that it was a heart attack. It was curious and helpful a few weeks later when Glenn received a letter from his teacher's mother. The letter explained that Professor Culp had written to his mother about a promising young student he was helping, and he was hopeful that this young man would be able to turn his life around and move beyond the life of crime when he was released from the reformatory. That dream of Professor Culp was not to be realized, at least not in this institution. After the death of his teacher, Glenn never returned to school while at the reformatory. Instead, he decided to learn a more immediate skill. After watching the prison boxing team train one afternoon, he approached the team's trainer and told him that he'd like to learn to fight. The large and imposing trainer looked down at this young kid and said in a flat and somewhat insulted voice, I don't teach people to fight. I teach them to box. Glenn threw himself into boxing with the same enthusiasm he'd thrown himself into his criminal activity and when he got to jail into his studies, but that was over. Boxing was the most important thing going for him right now. After several matches against other inmates, Glenn, in his words, he won a few and he lost a few. But it sent a message to the inmates who, at times, had abused him. Those predators had now sought weaker and more vulnerable victims. Glenn didn't save his rage or fighting skills just for the predator inmates. He spent a fair amount of time scuffling with the guards. At the slightest provocation, Glenn lashed out at guards. They possessed the two things that pushed Glenn's buttons. They had authority, and they wore uniforms. 
In Glenn's words, quote, I must have been a stupid bastard because it took me a dozen whippings and months on end in the dark hole of solitary confinement with only bread and water before I decided I was on the losing end of this stick. There was no way I could understand at 16 years old that to continue like this was setting myself up for execution by legal means or die at the hands of some sick inmate or even a guard. Glenn was at yet another crossroads. His time in the hole and his time fighting had eaten away all the good behavior time he'd accumulated. On yet another stretch in the hole, eating stale bread and drinking warm water, he decided to try something different. Trying something different is not the same as changing. Glenn could see that his life had become a revolving door of abuse, fighting, and receiving whippings, all followed by solitary confinement. So he made a conscious decision to behave differently. He would still rage at the guards and their treatment, but he didn't lash out. He tried to be friendly and cooperative. This change wasn't obvious to the guards. They were used to this little Glenn Williams being a serious pain in the neck, and he'd proven himself to be violent and quite dangerous. It took a couple months before the guards and even the other inmates recognized the change in Glenn. In his mind, his plan was finally working. He thought there was one last thing he could do that could prove that he had actually changed. On the next Sunday, Glenn lined up to go to church. He thought if he could get the chaplain on his side, there might be a chance he could again accumulate some good behavior time. He thought an affirmation of change from the chaplain might actually help him get out of the reformatory and back on the street where he could get back to pursuing his goals of being a career criminal. Glenn also thought that a benefit might be that at some point he might catch one of these guards on the outside, and without his fellow guards backing him up, they would all find out who was the toughest when it came to a one-on-one situation. So, each Sunday, Glenn went to church and affirmed to anyone who would listen that he was now a card-carrying Christian and that he'd changed his ways, and more importantly, his thinking. When it came time to sing the hymns, Glenn's voice rang out. He was in full method acting mode, never breaking character and never sharing his plans. It worked. Six months after Glenn's renaissance as a reformed criminal, the chaplain sent a glowing letter to the parole board on Glenn's behalf. A friend and trustee inmate who worked for the chaplain told Glenn that the chaplain told the board that he could not believe the transformation, and they practically told the board that Glenn walked on water. Glenn went before the board and pleaded his case. He told them of his personal transformation from angry kid to God-fearing, church-going Christian. He told them how he had come to see the light and how the light was showing him the way to the future, and he hoped he would make the chaplain, the warden, the board, and finally his parents proud. Three weeks later, he was riding home in a car with his parents, his mother reminding him to thank the Lord for this gift of release. Glenn was thankful, but the Lord wasn't on his gratitude list. He was grateful, but he was grateful that he'd soon be back on the streets doing what he loved doing. But this time, with the knowledge of hundreds of criminals, all of whom had given him advice on how to succeed as a criminal, Glenn was really anxious to put his education to work, but knew he was going to have to lay low. People were watching. The town was watching. His parents were watching. The parole board was watching. So he laid low for a year, thinking, planning. But after a year of boredom and wandering the streets of Wenatchee, Glenn had reached his breaking point. 
the small town was closing in. The townspeople seemingly could not forget Glenn's past, and everywhere he went he felt looked down upon and judged. Sometimes you just have to give the people what they expect if you want them to stop looking at you. And that's exactly what Glenn did. Glenn decided that he couldn't get too far if he didn't have a gun. And in rural Washington, guns were not that rare in local households, so Glenn decided he'd start burglarizing houses again until he found a gun. He was also looking for a car to steal so he could move on with his life and his life of crime and get out of this small town. As luck would have it, Glenn was searching through a parked car one night and found a thirty-eight police special and a shoulder holster. He decided to leave the car. Even Glenn at times had a blast of common sense, and maybe it was now his advanced degree in crime that he'd earned in the reformatory that he was making a few different decisions. With a new gun and an easy way to conceal it, Glenn could not be happier. He checked himself into a downtown hotel, and he felt like he was a man with a plan, and more importantly, a future. The next morning, he went to a busy local cafe and had a celebratory breakfast. After finishing his breakfast, he walked up to the cashier, pulled out the gun, and demanded all the money in the drawer. Clearly very serious about what he was doing, he told the cashier that he'd blow her head off if she called for help or reached for the gun that he knew they kept under the counter. She gave Glenn all the money from the cash drawer. He put his gun away and walked out of the cafe and back to the hotel. Turning on the radio in the hotel room, the reports of his robbery were already on the radio. Eyewitnesses had told police that the robber was six feet tall and weighed 180 pounds. Glenn felt a bit of relief. He was five foot seven and weighed 140. Were they really talking about Glenn's robbery, or was it possible that this same cafe was robbed twice in one morning? Glenn stayed in the hotel for the rest of the day, and he learned that the radio had been reporting his robbery, and that new descriptions of the robber were coming out all day. His cafe robbery got him $200, which would be $3,900 in today's money. Not a bad haul for a kid, plus he'd gotten a free breakfast. This kind of easy money did nothing but empower Glenn and convince him that this was the way to make money. Working? Why would anyone do that? He knew now that he'd have to get out of town. It was only a matter of time before someone in town would recognize the description of the kid that's been stealing and robbing in this town for most of his young life. His plan was now to wait till dark, sneak out, steal a car, and just get out of town. Stealing a car wasn't so easy. The town was on alert about the robbery, and patrol cars were cruising everywhere. Glenn saw several of them pass by as he was walking the dark streets looking for a car to steal. It was time to get out, and his opportunities for escape were going to fade as the sun came up. Moving slowly and carefully through the streets and through the neighborhoods, Glenn got lucky. A car pulled into a driveway across the street from where Glenn was walking, and he saw the car had just one person in it. He ran across the street, and as the man got out of the car, Glenn was at his back with the gun pushed into his spine. He told the man to get back in the car. The man did as Glenn asked, and Glenn got into the back seat with the gun pushed against the back of the driver's neck. The driver was shaking with fear and begged Glenn not to hurt him. Glenn told the driver that he'd be fine as long as he did what he was told. Glenn told the driver they were headed for Spokane and that he should drive carefully, and if he did anything to call attention to himself, Glenn would blow his head off. 
In a few minutes, they were out of town and driving the dark, quiet roads of 1932 to Spokane and another crossroad in Glenn's criminal career. He'd just committed armed robbery using a stolen gun and was driving with a hostage, gun in hand. The hostage was a man from town. Though he didn't know the man, it was certain that the man's description would be positively identified as Nathan Glenn Williams, 17, of Wenatchee, Washington, former inmate at the Washington State Training School and the Washington State Reformatory, and in general, a giant disappointment to all who knew him. It was still dark outside, and Glenn knew that his only chance was to get away from this guy before the sun came up and he got a really good look at Glenn's face. If the sun did come up and the man was able to see and then identify Glenn, then a serious decision was going to have to be made about what to do with this man. Not a word was spoken in the four-hour drive to Spokane. The man drove, and his passenger sat in the back, quiet and planning his next move. That next move was predicated on what the driver did. What if the guy pulled into Spokane and drove directly to the police station, or made some erratic move in the car and got pulled over by the police? Several people could end up dead in this scenario, including Glenn, and he was very aware of the situation becoming even more dangerous as he approached what he thought would be a safe place. As they pulled into Spokane, it was time to make decisions. It was about 5 a.m., and the sun would be coming up soon. Glenn told the driver to pull into an alley and get out of the car. The driver did exactly that, and as he climbed out, he was clearly panicked. He knew that if he was going to die, it was going to be in the next few minutes. And being killed had everything to do with Glenn at that moment and what he was capable of, and more dangerously, what was he willing to do? As the hostage got out of the car pleading with Glenn not to kill him, he told Glenn he would never call the police or report what happened. Glenn had made a lot of misjudgments in his life up to this point, but he was no fool. He knew his hostage would be looking for a police station within five minutes of getting away. Glenn told the guy that if he cooperated, he'd be fine, and that this would all be over soon. If not, he'd kill him on the spot and leave him where he laid. Glenn told the hostage that he had friends waiting for him just around the corner and to stay very quiet, and that he was going to tie him up and put him in the trunk of his own car. Glenn used his own belt and the hostage's belt to tie him up. He found a rag in the trunk and stuffed it into the guy's mouth. Glenn purposely didn't tie the guy up too tight. And he told him, I'm going to tie you up loose enough so in a few minutes you'll be able to get free and call for help. But he told him not to be too quick about it and that he and his friends would be close enough to come back and kill him if he got out too quickly. Taking all the man's cash, Glenn walked out of the alley and within a block hailed a passing cab. The cab took him to a hotel on the tougher side of town, and Glenn checked in under the name Paul Gregory, an alias that he would use off and on for the next 40 years. After four days of laying low in a hotel, Glenn caught a cab to the train station and bought a one-way ticket to Minneapolis. After a few days in Minneapolis, he began to think about his next steps. He calculated his career at this point. Armed robbery, assault, horse theft, car theft, burglary, kidnapping... What's next? What would John Dillinger do? What would Creepy Carpus do? Glenn began searching for a bank to rob. His thinking, as he learned in books and in movies, and as they said in the movies, go where the money is. His plan would have to be solid. He didn't have a car, which meant after the robbery he'd be on foot. He'd need an exit plan, so the 
plotting began. He located a bank that he thought would be just right. One afternoon, while sitting in a cafe across the street from this bank, a large and imposing guy stopped by his table and asked him where he was from. Glenn, already on edge, turned and told the guy to buzz off and mind his own business. The guy went into the kitchen, and Glenn soon found himself being yelled at and tossed out of the cafe by the waitress, who turned out to be the guy's daughter. Glenn tried to explain that he just wasn't used to people asking about him personally. The man stepped out from the kitchen and pulled Glenn aside. Listen, kid, all I wanted to tell you was that gun you're hiding is not really hidden. You're going to have to be a little more careful if you're going to be carrying. He told Glenn something that should have been obvious, but somehow wasn't. He told Glenn that if you're going to be carrying a gun, you better be prepared to use it, because when the other guy has a gun, he will be ready. At that point, having a gun for Glenn was more of a prop. It got him what he wanted, which was confidence and gravitas, but was he really willing to shoot someone and kill them? Dillinger did. Carpus did. Would Williams be willing to follow that path? Or was that a step too far? At 17, the answer was not yet known, but it was being considered. A couple days later, the same guy who'd warned Glenn about his gun asked him to go for a ride with him. They climbed in a car and drove across the bridge to St. Paul and then immediately turned around and drove back to Minneapolis. The guy stopped in front of an apartment building and turned off the car and asked Glenn if he remembered the route they'd just taken. Glenn said he did and the man who by now Glenn was calling Big J told him that's the route to state prison. If he took that route after robbing the bank that he'd been watching, he'd be caught for sure. Stay off bridges that link cities when leaving an area, he told Glenn. Glenn was shocked and a little embarrassed that he'd been so obvious in what he was planning. But obvious is not always obvious unless the person watching knows what to look for. And it seemed Big J knew a lot about what to look for. First thing, Big J spotted the gun. And he spotted a kid who seemed to have a plan. And then figuring that this kid could be trusted, or at least trusted as any career criminal or any 17-year-old could be trusted, Big J decided to take a chance. He told Glenn that he had knowledge and that Glenn had ambition. And he told Glenn that he reminded him of himself 25 years earlier, and that alone was reason enough to partner up. Glenn at this point was open to a partner, but Big J was talking about waiting and planning for weeks before a job. He told Big J that he had a bank ready to be taken right now. Big J told him, Go ahead and do the bank solo, and if he didn't get his ass shot off, they could talk about doing a job together down the road. Glenn thought that was a good idea, and after he'd looked over the bank, why would he share the money from a job that he'd already done the planning for? The day had come. Glenn had gotten up early in the morning and stolen a car. He figured trying to escape on foot was not the best plan. He had hidden the car in the alley behind the cafe where he'd met Big J and his daughter, the waitress. Glenn sat in the cafe drinking coffee, waiting for the bank to open. Marie, the waitress, and Big J's daughter told Glenn that she and her father were nervous for him. Was he sure that he was ready? Glenn told her not to worry and that he had everything in place. She filled his cup and she walked away. He realized he did have everything planned. But all of a sudden he realized he's forgotten to bring something to put the money in. He called Marie over and asked if she could bring him a large bag that he could put the money in when he robbed the bank. With a questioning smile, she said, You got it all figured out, though, right? 
An embarrassing moment for sure, but it would all be forgotten after he'd done the job and he was loaded with cash. He hoped. He finished his coffee and walked across the street with the gun in his shoulder holster and a paper bag in his pocket and dreams of Dillinger in his head. As he walked into the bank and saw a row of customers at the four teller windows, he had a powerful wave of fear that started at the top of his head and moved like a flash flood through his entire body. He remembered Big J telling him that fear causes panic, and panic causes bad decisions. He had to somehow control this fear and get this job done. As he looked at the lines of people and the guards standing nearby, he told himself that this was what he'd always dreamed of. So he pulled out his gun, held it in the air, and yelled, This is a stick-up. Any wrong moves, and I'll blast the hell out of all of you. Glenn was surprised when he looked around and saw that the people were actually doing what he wanted them to do. He quickly went to each teller as they piled the cash from their drawers on the counter, and he pushed all that money into his paper bag. With all the money from the tellers, he casually walked out of the bank. Standing on the sidewalk, he smiled and felt like it had gone well. Now just casually get across the street to the car and get out of town. But as he took his first steps, there was an explosion of glass behind him. The wave of glass knocked him down. Blood was streaming down his face as he tried to climb through the broken glass and get up. He couldn't believe it. They were shooting at him from inside the bank. He turned and fired into the bank and ran. Four men came racing from the bank and started chasing him on foot. He turned and fired several shots at his pursuers, and that seemed to slow them down. He found the car, and it started easily, and off he went, blood streaming down his face and covering the front of his shirt as he drove the car through side streets. He heard sirens in the distance, and he quickly pulled into another alley with an open garage at the end. He pulled the car into the garage, closed the doors behind him, and then laid down on the front seat. He had no feeling in his face, but the amount of blood was scary. He felt around his head for a bullet hole. A headache was coming on hard. There was no bullet hole, but there was a lot of small hits and glass fragments. This was obviously a new level of crime for Glenn. He now proved himself that he had what it took to rob a bank. It also proved a fact that we were all hoping was not true. That he was willing to, in fact, point a gun at another human being and pull the trigger. In his first bank robbery, he's now been shot with a shotgun through a window, and when shooting back, had in fact hit one of the tellers. She survived, but this was a level of violence that couldn't simply be explained away or minimized as a little juvenile delinquency. Glenn waited until dark and found a phone booth and called Big J. Big J gave him the address of an apartment that was safe. Marie and Big J were waiting for him when he arrived. Big J told Glenn that they were getting out of town that night. Glenn was nervous and thought they should stay put for a while longer. Marie then told Glenn that a bank had just been robbed by two guys in St. Paul and there had been a lot of shooting. She said that his little one-man operation had been pushed to the background as the cops had a license number of the robber's car and that cops from both cities were looking for these guys. Big J told Glenn that this was a good time to hit the road and he was unrolling a blanket he'd been carrying. Inside was a 30-30 rifle, a sawed-off shotgun, two revolvers, and six boxes of ammunition. Add in Glenn's 38 revolver, and they had quite an arsenal, and Glenn thought they could hold off a brigade of cops with what they had. Big J sent Marie out to get the car. Big J told Glenn that he was trusting him and that this was a big risk given Glenn's age and experience. 
He told Glenn that if he lived long enough, he might learn a few things. He then told Glenn a sober truth about their future. Big J said, quote, Our chances of living this lifestyle are a hundred to one. Even if we live, we might spend the rest of our lives in a prison cell. But for myself, I have no intention of going back to jail. I would rather have my ass shot off. Glenn told Big J something that seemed arrogant. But later on, it was something that Glenn talked about that it was something that he'd carried with him for his entire career. And that was that dead men tell no tales, and that causing the death of someone while pursuing his chosen field did not panic him. He said that he'd become immune to violence and that he would, if forced, shoot first and leave no witnesses. So, Glenn now has moved firmly into a life of adult crime. His list of crimes to this date is long and varied. He now has a partner and mentor, but this guy has vowed to never be taken. So, is Glenn climbing aboard an already sinking ship? In our next episode, Glenn's crimes escalate, and he's shown what happens in the real world when criminals get shot while doing a job. And that sobering sight might just be the thing that turns Glenn around. Or not. Thank you for listening. We'll see you on the rocks. This has been a production of APN, the Accidental Podcast Network.